The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 3. Today is our fifth message on the sixth of the seven churches of Asia. And this is the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. It's the one of the seven churches that we most want our church to be like. Philadelphia, as I think you're aware, means brotherly love. And this city was not named because of the church, but we can say that that name expresses the greatest truth that we can learn about the Christian faith, that Christianity is about love. The greatest commandments in God's law, Jesus said, are first that we love God, and then secondly, that we love our fellow man. And he doesn't mean that we love each other or love other people with a whimsical type of love, what I would call a flower child love. Does anybody recognize that reference anymore? Maybe I'm just too dated but not with that type of love, but a love that's based substantially in the faith of Jesus Christ who in His great love for fallen humanity gave His life in the cruel death of the cross. And that is the motivation for our love. Now once we receive Christ as Savior, we are responsible to share the love of Christ with others and tell them that what Jesus did for us in saving our souls And that teaching and sharing of Jesus Christ is the most significant part of church work. Now, the Philadelphia church was a model church because this is what they did. They were a church that was missionary. Of the seven churches, this is the one that's known as the missionary church. And that description comes to us from verse number 8, where Jesus said that, I will open a door for you that no one can shut. And most people believe that he has in mind a door to missions. This is the door that opens to the salvation of sinners across the world, which is the key to the survival of the Lord's church. Now, I'd like us to look at this letter for the fifth time, and you should be quite familiar with it if you've attended all of the sermons on it. This letter is actually a very special gift to this church because the Lord was sure to tell them that he was pleased with them. They they did what... Uh, He wanted them to do, and their faithfulness ensured His promise that they would be able to do greater works for Him. So we look in the Scriptures at Revelation 3, beginning in verse number 7, and Jesus says, And to the the angel, that is, the, the pastor of the church who is in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee, from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, this is our fifth week of study on the Philadelphia church. And I would say that the Lord, in this letter, also opens a door of doctrines about himself. There are many, many good doctrines that are found here. And I felt that it was vital for us to take a close look at this letter so we would very carefully consider it and discover why is this church the type of church that we want to be. Now, remember the Lord's salutation to the letter 
that he opened with an expression of his omnipotence. In these words, we actually do find that he is the Almighty God. He said, I am holy and true. And that is a characteristic only of God. Only God is holy and true. Uh, He is incomparable in his holiness. He is holy, which means actually that he's sanctified different, that he's completely righteous, that he is above the righteousness of anyone. And then he is also truth. And more than knowing truth, the Bible says that he is truth, that he is absolute truth. In a world that's full of chaos and confusion, and at a time when people say they don't know what to believe, and they don't know what is truth, well, we find here that Jesus Christ is the truth. Now, in the last message, we discussed why the Lord had such high commendation for the Philadelphia church. And underlying Christ's greatest satisfaction with his people is this one thing, and that is obedience. Being obedient to the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this is a church that proved that they loved him. Obedience is the key to this. This is what unlocks the pleasure of God. It's the only key that opens up the treasure tree of trove of God's blessings. Now, as much as someone might protest that they love Christ, and we hear this all the time, people who say that they're Christians say, yes, I'm in love with Jesus Christ. I just love him to death. I love Jesus. But if you don't live obediently, then your affirmations of your love for him fall on deaf ears. We have a responsibility to obey our Lord God, to live in in such a way that we show that we obey Him. And if we don't, the door is locked between us and Him. And we're left on the outside knocking and continually knocking. And He's not very much disposed to open that door if you haven't shown your love to Him by obedience. Well, this is a church that obeyed the Lord. They may have been the Philadelphia church, that is the church of brotherly love, but they are also Bereans about the Word. They were also a Berean church. That is, they never abandoned the Bible. They believed it, they practiced it, and they proved that they loved the Lord by professing His name. He said, you have, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. And because of those key vital points of obedience, the Lord said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation. And He said, I'm going to give you a permanent place a prominent place in service to my kingdom. And he said, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he said, you'll have names of citizenship in the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. And my name will be upon you because you belong to me. And if you haven't heard those parts of the message, then I would encourage you to listen to last week. We're thrilled to speak of these certain promises the Lord gives, guaranteed promises upon those who trust him. But I want to take you now into the third part of our outline. Uh, first, we talked about the omnipotence of Christ and that, and that salutation. We've also talked about obedience to Christ and that they had kept the word, they had kept the Lord's name. But now, thirdly, we want to look at the oppression of the church. Amongst all this good news and precious promises that are in the passage, we need to remember the world that we live in. Most are not happy to live side by side with Christians. That is, if you're the kind of Christian who lives your faith, that you are the obedient Christian, then people are not much going to like you. Now, if you live like the world, if you live just like them, then the world will accept you, they will respect you. But if you're a bright spot in a very dark world, you'll find that people hate you. Those are the words of Jesus. He said that darkness doesn't like the light. So if you're living in the light and you're brightening up the dark, dreary places where people do their sin, then like bugs under a rock, they'll, they'll scramble, they'll scurry to get away because they simply do not like the light. Now sometimes we're, we're far too concerned about Satan's power and we very much ought to be concerned about his power because he has a lot of power, more than we have. But we don't really need to fear Satan when we stay in the light. When we stay in the light of God's obedience, when we stay close to Christ, then we know that He'll protect us. Christ is greater than Satan. He's greater than all the demons of hell. You see, here's the thing with Satan. Satan is on a leash. 
He's only allowed to go so far. Satan is under God's control. Do you realize that? Do you understand that God is greater than all? Even Satan is under God's control. And Satan can only go as far as his leash extends. He can't get over into the light. He has no power to go beyond that leash. So like a chained dog, Satan only goes so far and he stops His range stops at the edge of the light. And so if you stay over in the light of Christ, there's no need to worry about Satan crossing over out of his circle of darkness into your circle of light. But the trouble comes for each of us as Christians when we step out of God's light and we step into the darkness of Satan when we go over into his territory, then we're going to have problems. The world is his territory. Some of your friends... And some of your family are in Satan's territory. So just don't go there. Don't go over into that territory and you don't need to worry that Satan can hurt you. Well, here, the church of Philadelphia is one that's protected from Satan. But that doesn't mean that there weren't people in Satan's territory that weren't constantly slinging mud against the walls. And so this is what Jesus addresses in this next part of the letter. The letter is mostly about precious promises of mission work and godliness and the hope of heaven. But here we find the Lord breaks into the letter to do a little bit of maintenance on the walls. There's a lot of mud slung against Christians. There's a lot of hostility from the wicked world. And here Jesus stops to address that. There aren't any negatives for this church. Now the other letters to the other churches, we found that. Negatives and rebukes and chastisements. The Lord said, you've done this wrong. You need to correct that. You need to repent. But there are no negatives here. This is a church, he says, you will be protected. No harm will come to you. You are assured of receiving your new name and living in your new home. But those who stand against the church don't fare as well. The church has opponents. And it's sad when we look in this letter to find out who they are. Who are the people that are against the church? He says in verse number 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Now you remember that that synagogue of Satan? We found that, Also in the second chapter, in verse number 9, that there are people from this synagogue that are mentioned. There it says, I know thy works. Jesus says to the church, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but are not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. And Jesus purposely used this term, synagogue. Synagogue is a word that means gathering. And... The Jews would meet in synagogues because they're away from the temple. They had no temple anymore. The temple's already uh, been destroyed by the time that we read this, or nearly. uh, Well, yes, in this passage it has been destroyed. And um, the Jews would gather in synagogues because it was necessary for them to be unified, meet together, stick together. They believed that they were special people, and only they were worshipers of the one true God. So synagogue here is distinctly a Jewish reference. And the Jews gathered in these synagogues because they say we are the worshipers of Jehovah God. But these are actually people that had rejected Jesus Christ. And so he disowned them and he called them the synagogue of Satan. Now actually Jesus uses this term in a mocking way. And we know that he was prone to do this because in his ministry he said these are the types of people that are liars and their children of the one who is the father of all lies. And that is Satan. So he calls them this synagogue of Satan, the gathering of Satan's people. Now we realize here they say that they are Jews, but they're not. That's what Jesus said. Well, how can you be a Jew but not be a Jew? Well, he's not talking about... uh, They were certainly Jews in the ethnic sense. They were ethnic Jews. But the problem is they're not spiritual Jews. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 2 when he said, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. Now, you understand circumcision is 
was a rite of covenant relationship between God and the Jews. But that physical circumcision that the Jews experienced, that they went through, was not righteousness. That was not the good thing that they needed to do to be saved. They needed more than that. What they needed was a circumcision of the heart. And this circumcision of the heart is actually a circumcision by faith. And so we wonder, well, have we suddenly discovered that the Bible is giving us a new definition of what it means to be circumcised and a new definition of what it means to be a Jew? Well, hardly. This is not a new definition at all. Um, Moses, who was the mediator of the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of the law that was given to the Jews, said that this is not something new. Jeremiah, that great prophet who called the Jews back to faith and obedience to the law, taught the very same thing that the Lord Jesus says here. So first we go to Moses and see what he says about this circumcision. And he says in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench because of the evil of your doings. So this is a circumcision by faith. This is a spiritual thing, and faith is necessary for us to be the children of God. Now, this synagogue of Satan that Jesus refers to is one that had been standing for a long time. In fact, it goes all the way back to the time of Moses and to Jeremiah because they're both dealing with the very same issue. Jews that are ethnic Jews, but not really spiritual Jews, in their heart, they are not circumcised by faith to God. Now, the Jews were also, as we know, the first people to hear the gospel. When Jesus came into the world, his ministry was almost strictly to the Jewish people. He said, I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But who was it that crucified him? It was this synagogue of Satan that persecuted and killed him. Now, you want to stay with me here because this is not all bad for the Jews. We're going to get to the good part of all of this. Last week I mentioned that Jews tried to kill Jesus when he taught in the synagogue at Nazareth. Why, why did they want to kill him? What did he do to them? I mean, Jew, Jesus, we know, was kind, compassionate, all of that. He healed people. So what did he do to them? Well, he said something they didn't want to hear. They said something, he said something very hard for them to hear. They hated to hear it. He said, you're sinners. You, you're sinners. Do you like to hear that? You're sinners. All of us are sinners, and you're sinners. And, he said, in this you're no better than Gentiles. You're no better than Gentiles. Now, in our text, it's the Jews here that are still strongly opposed to the Lord's church. Why? Because this is a church made up mostly of Gentiles. They hate Gentiles. But these are Gentiles that had claimed the heritage of the Jews, the promises of the Jews in the spiritual aspect, They were heirs of Jehovah God, and they were circumcised, not with the circumcision performed with hands, but a circumcision that is of faith, the circumcision of the heart. The Jews are very hated and oppressed people. They always have been. They hated Gentiles. Gentiles hate them. But there's always this one strong characteristic of Satan's people. They are haters, that's for sure. That's their big, strong characteristic. They hate, they even hate each other. Sometimes they hate Gentiles, except when it's to their advantage to combine their hatred against something that they hate even more. They hate God's children more than they hate each other. So they'll lay down their arms against each other and join in the fight against their common enemy. They hate Christians. And so in Philadelphia, we see Jews and pagan Gentiles join together to persecute the church. Oh, you hear the saying, politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, religion does too, only worse. Highly diverse groups can agree on one thing. Christianity must be destroyed. This is why Paul wrote, we are troubled on every side. No matter where you go, no matter where it is, people believe Christianity should be 
destroyed. There is not one person in all the world in his natural condition that is a friend of Christ. Satan attacks from all angles. But despite that rank hatred, what's promised to those who are faithful to Christ? Well, we have a promise that we're going to be protected from all of the hatred. And this protection comes to us in, in two diverse ways. There are two outcomes for the enemies of Christ. Both of them work to the advantage of the Christian and also, in one way, to the advantage of the Jews. Now, all people are involved in this first aspect. All of them are involved in the first. Some of them are involved in the second. Now, the first is that there's coming a day when all, no matter who you are, all are going to bow in submission to Jesus Christ. All will submit to God. So if you stand against God, you had better take your best shot now. You better hit with all you can. Give Him your hardest punch because it's all you're going to get. And then, get ready to be pummeled into submission. Grit your teeth and get ready to bow. Now we can say to the world that hates us, someday... You may exercise all the hate that you can against us, but someday, one day, you are going to bow at the feet of Christians. Do you see this in verse number 9? Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. Now don't misunderstand. Don't think that the world is going to worship you. That's not what it means. Christians are not going to be worshipped, but these will be brought to the feet of Christians as... Christ stands on the neck of those who oppose Him. He puts His foot on their neck and He humbles the enemy before His people so they'll know, who does the Lord love? Who is He in love with? He's in love with His people and they're going to bow in submission to the Lord and be beneath our feet as we stand with Jesus Christ. And so these Jews that oppose them, they will bow. Paul said to Ananias, the high priest who beat him, he said, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. Well, the highest religious authorities would bow before the Lord Christ. And so shall the Jews in Philadelphia. They, they'll not stand. God is not their God. And they'll learn that God loves Christians, not them. They are synagogue, the synagogue of Satan, not of the synagogue of God. So that's one outcome for everybody who opposes Christ. If they continue in that, then they will be forced to bow in submission. But there's another outcome. Now, at one time, all people, as I said a moment ago, it doesn't matter who you are, at one time, all people were against Christ. At one time, you that are now born-again believers in Jesus Christ, before you came to Him, you were opposed to Him. Before you came, you had no thoughts of righteousness, holiness, and being what God wanted you to be. You were the enemies of Christ. You were once the child of wrath, even as others. That's not me saying that. That comes straight out of the Bible, out of Ephesians chapter 2. You were once children of wrath. I was once a child of wrath until God did something to me. Until He changed me. Now what happened to you is going to happen to some of them. Some of them that are God-haters now, God has chosen to salvation. And so what happens to them? Well, this second thing, some, some will come to salvation. And praise God for this, that God brings some of them to salvation. When they realize the hopelessness of their submission, they'll come to Him in salvation. Now, if you want a reference for this, you can write down, and I'm talking about Jews at this particular point, you can write down Revelation 7, just a few chapters over, and you can read there, and you'll find that when the church has gone out of the world, when the Lord takes His church home to be in heaven, then there will come a time of tribulation, and in that time, Christ will begin to work with His people again. Now, the church is already gone, and then the focus shifts to preparation for the millennial kingdom where Christ will rule on this earth for a thousand years. And here's the great promise from God. That millennium is Jewish in character. That God has promised He's going to restore Israel to its kingdom. 
Now, Gentiles will be in that kingdom as well. We will be made rulers in the kingdom, but the Jews particularly are going to be restored at that time. 144,000 Jews will be saved from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe, and they will become the witnesses of Jesus Christ. The Jews will do this. Now, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 11, Paul describes... What will happen? See, we're not speaking against Jewish people. We're speaking for the faith of Jesus Christ is what it takes to get into heaven. And we want to note here, Paul describes it. Paul says, God has not cast away his people. The Jews have not been forgotten. So we note that he says that his people will be saved. In other words, he says they will be saved. In other words, they have already been identified as chosen and belonging to him. And he will give them salvation. Romans 11 verse 2, the beginning part says, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. In verse number 5, Even so then at this present time, there is also a remnant according to the election of grace. And then in verses 26 to 28, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Now, he's telling us there that Israel will be saved because of God's electing grace. They were once the enemies of the gospel, but they are chosen... And they will be saved and they'll be taken into the millennial kingdom where they will serve Christ. And so they're going to look on the Christ that they crucified and they will agonize over what they did to him when he was on this earth. You see, you can take and read Isaiah chapter 53 and that is precisely what it's talking about there is that the Jews mourn for the fact that they first rejected Jesus Christ. So the time will come when the gospel message that the Jews hated to hear, the message for which they crucified Christ, there's going to come a time when the nation of Israel will begin to tell the old story of Jesus Christ that they hated to hear. And it's only Christ that can make that kind of change. Only God can take a person out of Satan's kingdom and translate him into the kingdom of light. There isn't a person on God's green earth that at one time was not resistant to Christ. All of these good Christians in Philadelphia were at one time resistant. Once they were strangers from the covenant of promise, but Christ, through the effectual working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, brought them in. So praise God for this. He still has plans for Israel. He promised that many of them will be saved. Now that leaves us with this very important part of the message. Everything that we've learned in three or four or five sermons up to this is really good. But this next part, I think, is really the crux of this letter. In this fourth part, we see the opportunities for the church. In verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. There is an open door for the church. Now, I wonder how many times sermons have been preached on the open door. Some of you may listen to J. Vernon McGee on the radio. He's been dead for many years, but his program still plays. uh, The Through the Bible program. And J. Vernon McGee was once the pastor of the Open Door Church in Los Angeles. And that term, the open door, that became a very popular name for churches because that is a name that stands for opportunity. It stands for the opportunity to reach out beyond the physical walls of the church, to go outside, to go outside of the building and to impact communities for Jesus Christ. Now we see this in the text. A door was opened, and this church, though it was a small church, walked through that door, and because they did, they had influence in their city. An insignificant small church, as far as most people would see, this is a church that had influence in the city of Philadelphia. What are the opportunities that the Lord gives? Well, I want to deal with the first one uh, today. 
And then we're going to veer off next week and we're going to look at their second opportunity and then we'll discuss what happens to the church during the time of tribulation. That's going to be the next sermon. But here, we're going to deal with this first part, the first opportunity, which I think is the main point of the entire passage. And this is their opportunity to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why do we understand this to be a door of missionary opportunity? Well, thankfully, we have a Bible that explains the Bible. And so we can go to other passages of Scripture, other places that use the same language, and there we'll see that an open door is a metaphor for the church in its gospel outreach. So we're going to look at some of those places in Scripture. I'd like you to first turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And I take these references from the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. And he was always looking for opportunities to preach. You know, it's amazing what God can do in the most trying of circumstances. When the gospel, uh, opposition to the gospel is strong, does that actually limit our opportunities to preach? Well, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 7 to 9. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, verse number 9. For a great door, and effectual, is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, at the end of that First Corinthian letter, Paul revealed his plans for the next missionary trip, and he stated where he planned to go, and he said, there is a door. There is a door opened for more preaching. And he perceived this to be a large door, an effectual door. Now, if we could pause there for just a moment. This effectual door is made that way by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as hardened as sinners are, the Holy Spirit has power over resistance. God changes. The Holy Spirit changes the stubborn will. And He makes people willing to come to Him. If He didn't do that, none of us would ever come. Now, Paul didn't concern himself with whether the gospel would work. He didn't concern himself whether the gospel could do what God promised it would do because he knew it wasn't up to him. This is in the Holy Spirit's power. It's the Holy Spirit who changes the heart. So I don't have to worry about what God does with what I preach. God changes the heart. So there, there are plenty of sermons that we could preach on that one point alone. We don't preach the gospel in our power. The gospel is God's. And it accomplishes everything that God intends for it to do, which simply means this. God will save who He wants to save, and He won't who He doesn't. It's as simple as that. God saves who He wants to save. Now Paul says this is an effectual door. And I believe that he means there are plenty of opportunities. But he realizes through much personal experience that however great the door is and however wide the door is, the opposition to the gospel is just as great. No one ever set his feet firmly and opened a Bible and began to preach and then found that he was the most loved person in town. Go try it sometime. See, everywhere you go, somebody believes the gospel should not be preached. Now let me just give you a little bit of side, a side note here to give you an example. Some of you may have read the story about the cross on the hill over in Rincon Valley. The cross that overlooks, you know, sits up on the hill there in the, in the field. The man who put the cross there was a war veteran, and he was a Christian. And he maintained that cross for about 30 years, but then he died. And since he died, someone has trespassed on that property to keep up the cross. Recently... Back in October, when we had all the fires around us, somebody went up there and put lights on the cross. Now, I don't know if they're still there, but they were there at the time right after the fires. And reading this story in the newspaper, the newspaper said there were many people that were unhappy because of that, because they hoped that the cross would just go away. They didn't want anything to do with the cross. They were offended because there was a cross on the hill. Now, you see, a community ravaged by a disastrous fire does not thank God that they're alive. Now, praise God for first responders. Praise God for the fire department, police department, all the work that they did. And those were selfless men who, who risked their lives to help people day after day while those fires went on. But I'm telling you, the one who really saved it all is God. It's only God because it's not 
far, far worse than it was. God has His purpose in all that He does. But there are people that are determined the gospel shall not be preached and they'll protest and protest and they'll keep on protesting until it goes away. But has protest ever killed the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Rome couldn't kill the gospel. They finally gave in. They gave, they gave in, gave in and Rather than trying to destroy the church altogether and say, there shall be no church, they decided to start their own. And their plan and method is to destroy the gospel from within. Preach a false gospel, and then we'll get rid of the church. So other governments, they've not been able to do it. In communist China, the underground church thrives just as it did in the years of the Soviet Union when the only thing existed was a, was a, 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 a state church that barely survived publicly, but secretly. There was the church that was going on underneath, and the gospel never stopped in communist Soviet Union. Are there no doors? Well, yes, folks, there are plenty of doors, but the doors must be found, and the doors must be walked through by fearless men and women of God. And you and I must walk through those doors, and if we don't, the open doors will be closed. Now let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the 12th verse, Paul spoke of the Lord opening a door. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Now, there's a, there's a, a phrase that you need to underline. A door was opened to me of the Lord. Now, you remember in Paul's time, there was hardly any place that welcomed the gospel. The doors were certainly not opened by the people who lived in those cities. The Lord must open the doors. I don't think there's a clearer statement of the effectual working of the Holy Spirit in salvation than open doors that Paul talked about when he returned from this missionary journey. That's in Acts chapter 14, if you want to look at it there. And in Acts 14... Paul returned to Antioch to give a report of all that went on on his missionary journeys and all the people that he had talked to and reached with the gospel. So he and Barnabas give this report of the cities they visited. And in verse 27 of Acts 14, it says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. The Lord opened the door of faith. Now, if you go back and study that missionary journey of Paul and look at all the cities that he visited, most people would say, doors? What do you mean doors? At best, what you have here is just a crack in the wall. That's not a door. In Antioch of Pisidia, they were run out of town. In Iconium, they were assaulted. In Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead. But you know what Paul said to believers? Oh, that's okay. In verse 22... We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. God opens doors that at first look more like brick walls. And if we don't step out in faith, you'll not see the door. Mysteriously, doors appear where there are walls when we let God walk before us. And so in places where we think, well, the gospel can never reach there. Don't preach the gospel there. Nobody's going to respond to the gospel where we think people will not be found who will trust the Lord, they do. And there are thriving communities of Christians there because God has opened a door. And when He opens a door, nobody shuts it. This is what He said in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he, he that is holy, that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Now, each of us leads, needs to learn something about where these doors are. And it's not, where are these doors for someone else? It's, where are the doors for you? And that door is not in Africa. The door is not in South America. The door is not in Egypt or in Southeast Asia. For millions and millions of Christians, the doors are not that far away. The door is your front door. And it opens up into your neighborhood. It's the door that opens into your office where you work. It's the door that opens into the store where you shop. It's the door for students that enters into their classrooms. And did you know this for some of you? It's the door right down the hall of your house, the bedroom 
where you may find your husband or your wife, or another door where you find your children, that's the door that you must walk through with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, there are people. Wherever you see people, there's a door of opportunity. And of course, I'm not telling you the door is easy to walk through. You already know that. For sure, just as Paul discovered, behind every door there is a prospect, but there's also an adversary. Satan doesn't give up his people easily. He has his helpers everywhere. You find the gospel and you'll find Satan. But what does Jesus say? When he opens a door, Satan is not powerful enough to shut it. A person's own mind is not powerful enough to shut the door when Christ opens it. There are plenty of people who said, I'll never trust Jesus Christ. I'll never listen to that message. I know some of you that said the very same thing. You said, I'll never believe that. But you're sitting here. And now you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because God said this in Psalm 110 verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. So the most powerful people stand against the gospel. The most stubborn minds stand against the gospel. But no matter how hard they try, they can't stop it. And that makes them mad. So they stomp and they fume. They always have. But the church is still here. They can't close the doors. They'll push, they'll tug with all their might, but they can't close doors that God opens. And so you may ask then, well, if that's true, then why aren't there more people saved? Well, I tell you, you can, you can deal with all the conundrums of sovereign election and effectual calling and all of that. I believe those things. Uh, those are doctrines that I teach, but I also know this, that the Lord uses means. And I know that there was never a person saved and there never will be a person saved unless somebody walked through a door of opportunity and gave the gospel to them. So you can stay in here and you can gaze out the door and not walk through it and then the church perishes on the inside one by one. A door is no good if a door isn't used. Now, perhaps I should do this and that's to spend some time on the other side of the issue, he also closes doors. Christ also closes the door. And when he closes it, you'll never walk through it. You won't even want to walk through it. And if you did, you couldn't get through it. So might I, might, I might briefly mention this, that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you persist in stubborn rebellion against Christ, he will close the door. Noah preached for 120 years before the flood. When the ark was finished, Noah went inside and God shut the door. The water started to rise and I'm sure there were many people on the outside who said, we need to get in that ark. And they started beating on the door of the ark, but you know Noah couldn't open the door. God shut it. And I'm sure there were many people on the outside that were Noah's friends in some way, at least they could tolerate Noah but they never would believe the message that Noah preached. Noah could not open the door. When God closes it, nobody opens it. And someday, someday, folks, this could happen to you. When I preach to you like I do today, that door, that door to the ark is still open. And you can come and you can walk through that door. But one day the Lord's going to say, it's time to close the door. And when that happens, you won't get in. God says, today is the day of salvation. Find a place for me in the Scripture where it says, wait till tomorrow. The door will still be there. Just wait till tomorrow, then you can go through. Wait till you've had your fun. Wait till you've done what you want to do, and then walk through the door. The Bible never says that. He says, today is the day of salvation. No one is told to wait till tomorrow. Now, there is an open door today. Tomorrow might never come. If God closes the door, you'll never get in. Now I want to show you just one more door. This is in the Colossian letter, chapter 4. For most of you, the door of opportunity is on the front of your house. And it opens to the small part of the world that you know. And in that small part of your world, there are plenty of people. You're not going to run out of anybody to talk to about the gospel of Christ. But there's also a big world out there, isn't there? There's a world beyond us. 
when Christ commissioned the church, he said, you need to go into all the world. He said, preach the gospel where you are, but go to the regions beyond. So you go beyond Jerusalem, that is where you live. Go beyond your neighborhoods. Go beyond Judea. Go beyond Israel. Go everywhere with it. Now, we've got to cover our small part of the world and also the big part, too. And so in the Colossian letter, Paul said, this is the duty of all. In Colossians 4, 2-4, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. Now these are verses that tell us that it's our duty to pray that a door will be opened for our missionaries. It's our duty to support missionaries, to go to places where we can't go, and to give them the resources to preach to people they need to preach to. Now, the Colossian church was founded by missionaries. Now, interestingly, when Paul wrote to this church, he said he was in bonds. That's his way of saying, I was a prisoner of Rome when I wrote this letter. But did he stop preaching because he was in prison? No, his voice was still heard. People were saved in Rome. We find, find that out in the book of Acts that People were saved by listening to preach, uh, Paul preach. And here we have the letters that Paul wrote 2,000 years later. People still read them and they learn how to be saved. Now in Colossians, Paul said Christ is the head of the church. He wrote that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. He wrote that Christ made peace through the blood of the cross. He wrote that Christ is the hope of glory. Great messages. Great things about Jesus Christ. He was a missionary everywhere he was. 1,600 years later, the Puritan John Bunyan was put in jail at Bedford, England. And for 13 years he was there because he had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He resisted the government and kept on preaching when they told him not to. John Bunyan continued to preach even in jail. There were people that gathered under his jail cell window to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's an open door wherever you look. God opens those doors, and that open door is enough to change the world if you'll walk through it. Our opportunities are the same that they had in the New Testament. And where our opportunities stop and we're confined to the place that we live and we can't go to that foreign country to give the gospel to someone there, then we are to pray that doors will be open for our missionaries. We pray that our missionaries will have their tongues loosed to preach the gospel of Christ. And we pray the Holy Spirit will open the ears of the people who hear that they may believe and be saved. Philadelphia was a church of brotherly love. And there isn't a greater love that you can have than to give the gospel to someone who needs it. Who needs it? Everybody. Everybody does. Do you love your brother if you don't help him with the thing that is his greatest need? Now Paul said the gospel was a debt. That, that's the terms that he used. That God saved him and entrusted him with the gospel to give to others. And he said he owed a debt to every person to give what God gave him. And he was dishonest if he withheld the gospel from people that God gave him to give to others. God gave it to him to preach it, so he preached it. He's given it to you. He saved you. He's given it to you. Jeremiah said it in another way. He said, that, that thing, that thing, that, that word of God, that's a fire in my bones. I've got to get it out. It's burning me on the inside. I've got to tell somebody about this. And that's what you need to ask yourself. Is the gospel of fire burning in my bones? Christians aren't happy until they get it out and put the fire out by giving it to somebody else. That's the only thing that you want to pass on to somebody else that you might think will hurt them. It won't. It never will. They'll act like it will. They'll say, ouch, when you say, when you give it to them. The fire's burning them all right, but the fire will save them. The fire of the gospel saves. Folks, there are many open doors. There's so many open doors that it's drafty in here. And I mean, instead of us huddling up and getting close to each other and putting our coats on, we need to use the door. Go out side the door and take the gospel to the neighbors, to the office, to the store, to the classroom, wherever there's a door, walk through it. Now finally, on the other side of that door, there are three people, three persons. There is a prospect, there is an adversary, 
and there's Jesus Christ. Only one of those is greater than the other two. And that's Jesus Christ. If you walk through, Christ is waiting on that other side to help you to use that gospel and give you an opportunity to bring someone to Jesus. But you've got to walk through the door. Now next week I want to show you this other opportunity for the church. We want to talk about what is he going to do for the church when this terrible time of tribulation comes. And he says there are tribulations coming over the entire world. He says that in this passage. So what's going to happen to the church when it does? Is the protection of the Lord good for us? We're going to talk about that. And it's a wonderful, uh, I think a very interesting thing how the Bible proves what will happen to the church in that day of tribulation. Jesus said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message from your word. Lord, as I said last week in the, the beginning of this year, these two messages that we preached during this year on the Philadelphia church are very, very good ones for us to start out with. Lord, I pray that we would renew the zeal, the desire that we have to see people saved, to see our church uh, grow and respond to the commission that you've given us to preach the gospel, to walk through those doors. Lord, I pray that you bless your people today. Help us to take the message to heart, to think on it and be changed by it. And we give you the praise for it all, Lord. We praise our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the salvation that you give. There is only salvation in you and in none other. Thank you, Lord, for this word of God that we've had today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.